Welcome to Brave, Bold, Brilliant. Your host, Jeanette Linfoot, talks to incredible people about their experiences and unleashing their full potential. From the boardroom tables of big international business to the dining room tables of entrepreneurial startups, embracing opportunities, overcoming challenges, taking risks, while staying true to yourself is where the magic happens. Hi, it's Jeanette here. If you're enjoying Brave, Bold, Brilliant, I'd love it if you'd subscribe, share with your friends and leave a five-star review. Let's do it. Here's the show. So welcome to the Brave, Bold, Brilliant podcast. I am here today with the one and only Kev Orkian. Not only is he a top-notch comedian, musician, multiple business owner, he's also the owner of Jongler's Comedy Group as well. So we are going to get into loads of detail. I'm so excited. Welcome, Kev. Thank you, darling. Do you know what? It's an absolute pleasure to have you here I met you on Clubhouse and now you're here. It's like, this is great. This is great. It's going to be such a good... We're going to have a laugh. We're just going to have a laugh. It's going to be great. Exactly. And behind us, there are like so many like pantomime posters. You, I mean, really mixing with the stars. So when you said to me, I'll show you the museum. Yeah, it's, like, it's literally <laughs> like that. There's a ton of posters. I mean, these are only the ones that the wall will fit. So I've got tons of other shows and things that I've done. And then I've got all the memorabilia over there um, just from people and, and just lovely people that I've entertained who have given me a gift. Um, the last one I got, actually, and I'll show you uh, later, is the one from the SAS. So little did I know, but in 1941, the SAS was created. Wow. So in actual fact, I went and did a gig for them two weeks ago and they gifted me a limited edition, only 1,941 uh, gin bottles with the actual um, gin top which is uh, silver plated they've given each um, member of this uh, particular organization a bottle and they went Kev you were so funny we'd like to give you a bottle as well so they did and I was like thank you very much and that's gone into my little museum oh how lovely I know it's honestly it's fantastic it's great to be it's always nice to do these face to face you know if we can totally I love it um, so yeah but where we'll start I think Kev if it's all right with you always is your journey you know where life started for you kind of you know plotted history in terms of where you are now and then we're going to get into the detail after that Okay, so a potted history. For me, it all started um, 1974 uh, and we were living in Turnpike Lane. Um, we weren't a very wealthy family. So actually, far from that, we were a very poor family. Um, and bought up in North London, spent uh, a majority of my time uh, around the Edmonton, Enfield, North London, those kind of Hornsey and Turnpike Lane areas, Palmer's Green. Spent a lot of my life there. Grew up, had a great time, um, went to some uh, some schools um, that weren't the most memorable, let's say, uh, bullying-wise. <laughs> but, you know, did all that, did all that stuff, and then moved out from there, went into the entertainment industry. Um, I started doing a lot of um, amateur dramatics, and then went into my first professional, pan uh, sorry, first professional musical uh, in Me and My Girl, which is just there. So I did that one first, um, and that was in 1997. So I did that and then came out of that and went straight into fame, the musical in the West End. So literally that was my history, just West End shows, West End shows, West End shows, did all of them, Grease, Buddy Holly, Fame, Booger Nights, Happy Days, did all of those. Um, and then I decided I wanted to go on stage on my own. I wanted to be a bit selfish and get the laughs for myself, you know. So I started doing stand-up comedy and I did my first show in 2000 and I died a horrible death. Oh, no. um, I did. I wasn't very funny. Um, and even one of the Nolan sisters, bless her, who is no longer with us, bless her, Bernie, came up to me and she went, I said, what did you think of my act? And she went, you're shit. <laughs> and I just went, right, thanks. And I just I walked away. So it was all good, though. You know, she was a, she was an angel. Uh, four, four or five years later, she came up to me. She said, I forgot to add hot on the end of that. She said, you're very good. So, um, so I did that. And then I went into, um, yeah, touring around the world. I've done 400 cruises. I've done, I've, I've performed to millions of people around the world with my stand-up comedy shows. And I still perform around the world. I still do a load of shows. And then basically from that, I then ended up, I then ended up um, getting, sorry, that, by the way, if anyone wants to know what that was, that was next door just going and saying bye-bye. <laughs> um, and then ended up um, starting my own businesses. And what I wanted to do was get into actually not only benefiting my own career, but benefiting others as well. Because I felt there was now a niche market where I can get in and I can start performing 
getting the reputation up there so they go oh you were brilliant and then going yeah but next year I can give you someone that's going to be equally brilliant. Mm. So my business opened up that way. Um, it was called Howling Comedy Club, which then basically grew into Howling Entertainment. Um, and that was that. And then a few years later, uh, I bought the biggest comedy brand in the UK. She's very exciting. We're going to hear all about that. For Absolutely. Sure. Did you always know you wanted to do this from a young age? Because it okay. sounds like you you know, you know, you were pretty straight in there. Yeah, I, I didn't want to do anything else. Um, it, the weird thing is, I've always entertained. So whether that's being the class clown, telling jokes, um, entertaining my family, being, you know, just being a, a funny man anywhere and everywhere and always performing. And I actually see all that in one of my twins now when, when he's performing and when he's dancing and when he's being who he is. So I've always had that kind of approach, but it, was, it wasn't my family's approach. It was mine because my mum and dad didn't want that for me. They mm. wanted me to kind of follow my dad's footsteps be an electrician, be a, you know, be um, a sparky and do that kind of stuff, have a proper job. And when I kind of showed, I suppose, energy and power in wanting to be a performer, I think my father kind of went, whoa, this is not good for us. You, you, you don't make money from this, my, my son. And I went, no, I, I will. Um, and they really kind of backed off me for a while. They were like, nah, he's just being an idiot and this is not good for him or whatever. And then when they saw me in my first musical, and I was playing the lead. They went, okay, there's something here, you know? And then when they saw the second one, Fame, and then Booger Nights and Happy Days, they just went, this is it. He's going to make a career out of this. So they they were denying it for quite a few years before they accepted it. Mm. Um, but it's always been my dream. I've never, ever wanted to work for anyone else. I've, I've, I've been an entrepreneur from the age of 17. Um, I've never sat in another office and, and someone else give me a wage. I've actually, everything I've ever done, everything I look around me, Everything I see and achieve, I've done myself. Yeah, yeah. And, and and that's why I'm trying to instigate into my children and certainly other children to believe in yourself because that's exactly what it's what life's about. It's about believing what you can do and then going out and doing it. Yeah, making it happen. Yeah, totally. Making it happen. So how was those early years then when your mum and dad were not particularly supportive? I mean, obviously they loved you and all the rest of it, but they weren't, they weren't really giving you the backing to follow your dream. Right. Did you did did how did how did you deal with that? Did you just kind of get on with it anyway? Were there arguments? Was there tension at home, or how, how did it play out? Because I think a lot of people, you know, maybe listening to this, might be facing something similar where they really have got a dream, they want to follow something, but they've got people around them, whether it's parents or partners or just friends, that yeah. are sort of kind of saying, putting you off in a way, and saying, oh, you know, oh, no, don't do that. <sighs> that's that's not going to be a good yeah, path. Yeah, yeah, and and that was my mum and dad to a T. Mm. But um, and the realization behind what they were doing only came into my mind from probably the age of about 28, 29. So for a good 10 years, if not more, I was predominantly fighting a battle with them, which basically kept pushing me back all the time. So I was constantly like arguing with them. I mean, I moved out of, house, I moved out of home when I was 25 and a half, 26, something like that. But up until that time, they hadn't lost control over me because mm. I was still living in another house and they would still be there um, being ethnic and Armenian. It's very much like uh, my big fat Greek wedding kind of attitude. So they're always in each other's lives all the time. So, yeah, the in for me, the battle was not my dream. It was the fighting their 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 insecurities because I know I can do what I need to do to yeah. make it happen. I know that. But when I then turn around, for example, this this was one of the ideas. I said, do you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to buy a ice cream van. And my mum looked at me and, well, oh, my God, stupid boy, stupid. Why are you buy this? You know, and it was that. Suddenly, the negative hurdle kicked in. So, and people are listening out there. This mm. is pretty much how, how, not just my mum and dad's attitude, but anyone will do it, right? So, for me, it was, I want to, I want to buy an ice cream van. But that's all they heard. They didn't hear that I actually then want to set it up a business called Creporium, which makes crepes, French crepes, but it makes it uh, with healthy um, ingredients rather than just chocolate and this and that, whatever. Yeah. And it sits outside schools and it provides a, a form of nutrition. Uh, and, and, and that was my idea. And I put this business plan together. Uh, I put together um, how much it was going to cost, uh, getting a secondhand ice cream, the full works, and even getting a chef someone in to come in and just do the crepes and all that. And how much, it, I did everything and their insecurities killed my dream. Mm. Because 
I was ready to ask for a loan and get the ball rolling and make my dream happen. And I'd even bought uh, the domain name, uh, creporium.com, with a K. And I'd done the whole thing. The problem was, I was adopting their insecurities and deciding that that was mine. And I didn't do it. Mm. And when I got to about the age of 28, 29, I realised actually, the less you say to people, categorically, the better it is. Particularly people who know you. If you talk to a stranger, a stranger won't know you. So if I turn around and told you, I'm setting up a business, I'm going to do creporium, whatever, you'd be like, oh, well done. Yeah. Oh, that'd be a good idea. Yeah. If I told the same thing to my wife, which I did, she turned around and she went, are you going to waste money doing that? You know what I mean? Is it going to work? Is it going to be? So for me, it was very much shut up, don't say anything and, and move forward. So what I do now, and this is an advice I can give, mm. is don't share your story with people you know are going to be negative. Don't. Because... No matter what you do, if you're on top of a diving board and you're just about to dive into the water and you're like, I know I can do this. And then someone comes up behind you and goes, don't, because if you land, that might be concrete down there. Yeah. You're not going to jump. Yeah. Yeah. And if you're not seeing it for yourself until you actually jump, then you're ultimately you're taking the risk. And if you take the risk, then kudos to you. Well done for doing it. But a lot of people go, nah, you're right. And they move back. And that's the problem. In, in on this planet, what we have naturally come to terms with is the fact that we adopt other people's insecurities and think they're ours. Mm. And that's where it all goes wrong for a lot of people because there's great things in this planet that can happen every single day. And Richard Branson's one of them and so is Elon Musk, right? Now I talk about those two because there, there was an image of them the other day in, uh, in um, Richard Branson's kitchen or it, it, maybe it was Elon's kitchen. But either or, these two guys are emulating each other and going we can go to space we can go to space we can go to space and they did yeah now they're saying we can now conquer mars we can conquer mars now they are now we can conquer this we can do that we can do this now they're going to do it that to me is the kind of people you want to surround yourself with people who are never going to tell you that you can't do it because in this world if you don't take risks you're never going to make it and risks create opportunities and opportunities create a life that you want and that's yeah. as simple as it gets yeah 100 percent. so it's such brilliant advice it really is and, and like you say you you were on the receiving end in quite a you know quite a, a re very real way and and the 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 family background yep then and the culture so you've touched on it i love the accents by the way thank you very much <laughs> this is exactly how my mother speaks and she always said to me she said you know i said to her once i went mum you've been in this country nearly 49 years 50 actually this year 50 years you've been in this country and you still don't speak proper English. And she went, I speak proper English, you speak rubbish. Thank you very much. And that's how she speaks all the time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. But that culture, it was, how was it at home as, as kids growing up? Did you have brothers and sisters as well? Yeah, so I've got a younger sister, four-year-old. <sighs> to be honest with you, we didn't feel like we were living in England. We felt like we were living in Armenia because my mum's entire interpretation of our life was to live a life of learning Armenian, respecting and disciplining in Armenian. I was certainly very well disciplined in Armenian, which is not your go and sit on the, on the naughty step. Mm. That didn't exist. Plus we were in a flat, but that didn't exist. We were told if you didn't do it, yeah. and that was it. Um, and trust me, my backside and my legs got a lot of those whips over the years, a lot of them. Um, so we, we were brought up very much Armenian Armenian for four years before I started school. And even when I started school, the teachers would actually tell my mum, and my mum's English was poor then as well, but um, they would go, he keeps saying these words. Can you tell us what they are so that we can help him? Um, and apparently I, I was saying uh, Bedkaran, which means toilet. Uh, I need to go, I need to go Bedkaran. And they didn't know what that meant. So a few times, like, apparently, I'd weed myself. Yeah. So it was only when they understood the Armenian. So in actual fact, living in an English country, teaching the teachers Armenian is the wrong way around. But yet, that's what they adopted to help me. And within a matter of weeks, apparently, I was fluent in English. I was learning it quicker than um, anyone else. And I, I suppose television had a part of it, you know, part to mm. play in that. We were, were always watching the old Morecambe and Wises and whatever and as a kid. So I'm assuming I consumed all that. And yeah, for, and... In a way, I suppose the English for me has been my weak weak point because I was never good at it at school. I was dyslexic and I also had ADHD, which none of it none of it was diagnosed until I actually left school. Wow! Because obviously in the seventies and the early eighties, 
who knew yeah yeah yeah. Uh, it was only when i uh, moved away and uh, in the 90s i i was in my yeah i was in my early 20s i think when um someone turned around and said you know what he said if you're dyslexic he said you might have this problem that problem and i went oh yeah he said you should go and see someone and i was on tour with one of the musicals and i went to see someone they did a, a whole test on it and they said yeah you are you're dyslexic and you also have adhd wow how did that feel at the time did you did it did it did it, it, was sense. it a sense of relief and just kind of went oh i get it now made total sense yeah. made total sense to me but even now if i tell my mum she does she doesn't accept it because that's a flaw in her bringing me up okay. so she doesn't accept well like my mum doesn't speak to me we'll talk about that later yeah, yeah. but my mum doesn't talk to me anymore um for the last five and a half years she hasn't i won't go into it now i'll, I'll tell you more about that later mm. but for any kind of weakness you show as a human being in the ethnic communities is a very big no-no so for her son to be dyslexic or to have adhd or anything like that is no 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 this is not right no my son he's perfect i'm sorry maybe he's not good boy and this but he's okay i i, I bring him up right and it's that attitude that unfortunately is crushing a lot of people in the ethnic communities because they won't accept mental health they won't accept a lot of those kind of issues that they do have but they don't want to tell anyone because it's a form of weakness and women particularly because i we know uh, not particularly in the ethnic um, in the armenian communities but a lot of other surrounding countries that like you know turkey russia azerbaijan iran iraq georgia those kind of countries and certainly dubai's and the uh, saudi arabia uh, uh, sorry the uae's there is a form of if your daughter has those issues or has a a disability maybe her eyes a little bit lower than the other one or she might have a hair lip or her nose is a little bit bigger than usual or she's got so any one of those for any one of those flaws the family automatically decide she's going to be left at home so she's going to be uh, a seamstress she wow. won't no one will love her and that mentality is destroying to a person it's it's truly it crushes human beings i know i know i know personally people have killed themselves because of it and it's a terrible way to bring up your family mm. so if you if you then find someone and it's a match and there's a lot of um, match matches made you know um, yeah, marriages, arranged marriages yeah. still still to this day in, in particularly those countries and if they get together and and, and they're so, oh these two will have perfect children that's what the main aspect of their entire religion and their entire um, uh, kind of persona for living is all about perfect 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 and we know in this world nothing is perfect mm. you look at your children and you think they're perfect but let's be honest with you nobody's perfect in this world we all have flaws we all have issues and the moment we're and i say it in the most positive way the moment we're born we're dying that's how it works that's what life is so if you can live a great life and you can have a partner and you can you know live your life in an incredible way and you can live happy which is what the meaning for me life is about then you've succeeded in your life and it doesn't matter what you do in between but you have to be happy and unfortunately in these countries they they're denied that happiness mm. do you think that that propelled you into the world of comedy then actually wanting to give joy and happiness yeah, totally. and, and bring lightness into people's lives well, do you think that background influenced that then maybe? yes um me being i was I, and i say it with all sincerity i love my mum i yeah, i truly love my mum but she beat me and we're talking hard so we're talking sticks we're talking belts we're talking slippers we're talking anything she could get a hand on and it was quite regular but it never broke me and i wonder if that's part of the reason why she doesn't speak to me today because it never ever broke me and what i mean by break i know many friends in the armenian community who have been broken so they could have been incredible you know whatever but due to the fact that their parents broke them and broke them and broke them and they no you can't do that no you can't do that no you can't do that and that's what they heard and heard and heard they've adopted that persona so it only uh, a colleague of mine i won't name him but a colleague of mine was given a job in a very good business and he was in there and he always used to say to me do you know what i wish i could do something else i wish i could do something else and it's taken him 27 years to come to that conclusion and only this month he has quit his job and he's now starting up on his own to do uh, real estate but it's only taken him this long and when i said to him why is it taking you that long simple kev he said i believe what my mum said yeah and that respect for authority as well which is kind of drilled into you and from, we have to have that early. respect you see yeah. if i disrespected my mum in front of other people 
my mum doesn't need to beat me. They will. Yeah, yeah. That's how it works in the Armenian community or in the ethnic communities. So it's a very, yeah, it's a very strict way. So that positivity to want to make people laugh came from the fact that I never stopped wanting to be positive. I, I was always positive. Even after a few beats, I would go downstairs, I'd kiss my mum and I'd go, I'm sorry, mum, I do, I'm sorry. But I did enjoy it. And it was funny, wasn't it? And she'd go, no, it wasn't funny. I was a stupid child. And it was all that kind of thing. But And, and my mum's not horrible, but it was the way she was. So to make people laugh became my priority, but it became my priority with my family, not with my friends. It was when I was bullied in school for six and a half years and severely bullied. I'm talking stabbed twice in the arm, shot in the back with an air rifle. I was drowned twice in the, in the male toilets. I announced it was my birthday. They picked me up. They threw me on the floor um, and they kicked me so hard, kicked me in so hard. I actually ended up getting a fractured um, rib, uh, which I still suffer from today. Wow. Uh, but my parents don't know about it. They don't know any anything that happened to me, um, including the fact that I was handcuffed to a park gate and they threw the keys into the letterbox. I don't know how the hell they found handcuffs, but I managed to escape out of um, police issue handcuffs. And also um, when they beat me up so hard and they threw me into a, a, um, a stream, which they did, and they all threw stones at me. One of them caught my eye so bad that I bled from my eye. I ran home. I, I walked in. I, w I ran upstairs, washed my face. I took my shirt off and I washed it in the sink. I got all the blood stains out and then I put it in. My mum said to me, why have you washed your shirt? I said, I was in the mud and I said, I thought you might get angry. And I never, ever told her. But what happened was the funny came from that because I basically ended up telling the bullies jokes. And the, and the bullies would go, if, it's, if it makes us laugh, we're going to leave you alone. And by making them laugh, I ended up getting out of a lot of um, uh, situations as, as time went on. So I ended up actually using comedy as a way of protecting myself, which then ended up being ultimately my career. Wow, my gosh, what story. Talk about survival tactics. I would never, I, I mean, I'd know. This is why I love doing podcasts and, and conversations like this, because there's just so much... Um, gold really in your journey your stories and how it's led to but like tragic tragedy as well and that difficult yeah. stuff in in your life too from what you've said yeah, which yeah, people people when they see you on stage or they hear you they would never know that you know and no, that's, that's right. why it's really nice to see the man behind the face if you like the public sure. face so no i really gosh that's incredible that is incredible but you've obviously you know you've used that to propel you forward with your career with yeah. the joy that you bring to people in everything you do with the music and the comedy what came first then, the comedy or the music? Music. Music. Talk yeah, about I started, that. I started playing the piano when, when I was three and a half years old. It wasn't my dream. It was my mum's. So again, my mum being this ethnic girl at the age of 15, every Sunday they would go to church. It was the thing you did. We're mm. Christians. First Christians in the world, Armenians. We have to go. And it was that kind of attitude. So she would go to church every Sunday. The priest said to her, we've got a piano. If you, if you love music, try it. She started learning. She had about three lessons. And when her father found out that she was staying on an additional half an hour after church to do it, he basically pulled her away from it and said, you don't do that. What, why is that then? You're an Armenian girl. You cook, clean and look after your family. Mm. So she suddenly got pulled away from her creativity. And my mum is a very, very creative person. She's actually very funny as well. Um, and she's very lively. She, I mean, she's quite a character. Um, so she got pulled away. So when I was born and when I got to three and a half, <clears throat> play. So the teacher started teaching me at three and a half. By the time I was 15, I was, I'd graduated. And then 16, I became a concert pianist. So, and it was my mum's dream, everything she did. And my sister is also a piano teacher. Wow. So my mum, in that sense, got the two dreams she wanted. So we both perform. We, uh, well, I perform, she teaches. So that's how we did it. And it came, it, it was so good. And it was such a laugh. So uh, we did that together and that's it. We've, we've grown and we've, um, we've become, my, for my, for my mum, the greatest thing that could have happened. Do you know what I mean? And yeah. she enjoys listening to us all the time. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk, let's talk about some of the incredible shows you've been. I mean, this is just, like you say, a selection behind of the pantos and the people you've worked with. Yeah. And when we arrived, Chris and I, we were <laughs> chatting and we, you were telling a story about meeting Priscilla. Priscilla Presley. Presley, who's on That's the poster yes, behind right. us. This is a really, really funny story, and I'm sure you've got loads more. But to, to repeat the story you were telling <laughs> us when we came, because I thought it was hilarious. So, so 
Uh, Priscilla Presley and I were doing pantomime in 2016 with uh, Gary Wilmot, Wayne Sleep, uh, Ben Adams and myself. And we were doing Aladdin. And she was playing, I think, the genie uh, of the lamp, if yes. I'm not mistaken. Yes. I think that's what genie it was. Genie of the lamp. Genie yes. of the lamp. So she was playing genie of the lamp. And she was doing some interviews for ITV. And the ITV turned up. So they were all there. So ITV turned up. And I knew two of the cameramen from ITV. And they were there. And her assistant that was looking after all her needs and everything was a, a, a lovely girl called Georgina, who happened to be um, also working for the production company. So she was there doing her thing and it was all fantastic. But she was also seven and a half months pregnant. All right. So this girl turns up and I went, oh, what are you doing, Georgina? You're right, baby. And she went in and she went, yeah, God, I just want this baby out now. I want this baby out. So she left, right? And she sat in the corner with her notes and everything. So Priscilla walks in, <laughs> walks in, in front of the cameras. And I thought, I've got to have a laugh. But the thing is, she, I suppose, to a certain degree, doesn't get sarcasm, right? Yeah, yeah. So I walked up to her and I went, I went, so where were you, love? And she went, sorry? I said, where were you? what do you mean where, where was I and I went last night I said uh, I'd booked the table I said I've got everything ready I said and you didn't turn up sorry sorry I, I was booked for what and I went for a date I said we were we were going to go out I said you was, you said you'd go out with me for a, for a night uh, I, I, book, I booked everything I even I even um, ordered your favourite wine I said Chateauneuf de Pape which by the way I knew was a wine but lo and behold uh, she had never told me that. I'd overheard it, right? So she, she's now completely believing everything I'm saying. I'm like, I'm like, she went, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to turn you down. I, I don't know what you're talking about. Anyway, I turned around, literally went, do you know what? And, and obviously Georgina, you know, seven and a half months pregnant, sitting in the corner and uh, listening to this entire thing, looking at me going, you're such an idiot, right? So I turned around in front of, and by this time, ITV had switched the cameras on. They're now recording it. And uh, I literally went, I literally went, yeah, I said, I sat there. I said, all tucked up. I said, I had the, the red wine. I said, everything was ready. I said, I was just looking forward to having an evening with you to talk, you know, and I said, and you let me down. She went, I'm so sorry, Kev. I, I truly didn't mean to turn you down. I, I didn't even know we had this arranged. And I went, no, it's all right, love. It's all right. To be honest with you, I said, you turned me down. So I said, Georgina came with me and now look at her. <laughs> all right, so seven and a half months pregnant, right? And she looked at me and she just went, you're a disturbing person. You're weird. I don't like you. <laughs> I just walked off. It took me two days to get back into a good book. <laughs> so, um, but that's just one of the great stories, you know, um, that I've told with. I've told with so many people, Shane Ritchie, you know, Sam Bailey, you know, Sheila Ferguson, you know, um, Dame Edna. I've done, I've, you know, everyone. I've, I've, I've performed with everyone and I love it. Oh, talk about Dame Edna, Dame Edna. Oh my God, the what best. a G. Oh. The best person I've ever worked with. So that poster <laughs> behind me is the best person I've ever worked with. In, and I'm, I say that, hand on my heart, that is the best person I've ever worked with. 81 years old he was and he was lying to the public saying he was 78. He was 81 and he was playing in Dick Whittington and he was uh, the saviour of London, right? And obviously, as Dame Medna, hello, possums, oh, <laughs> gladiola, and all that. And he came in. But for the first eight days, there was no Dame Medna, right? It's just Barry Humphreys walking in, reading the script. And he kept saying, I can't remember my lines. I mean, I, I, I mean, to be honest with you, I, I, I'm finding this really difficult. And I was like, I'll help you. And I sat with him. We'd, we'd interact. We'd talk and whatever. And then one day, right, it was the ninth day in rehearsals. We've all... Got over it now. I mean, I don't even do comedy anymore because when you repeat your joke once, that's it. Second time, get a titter. Third time, people are like, come on, Kev. So you don't do the jokes anymore. That's that's kind of how the progress is in a pantomime. <laughs> We're doing the scene and I know Dame Edna is about to appear um, or Barry, excuse me, is about to appear, but he's nowhere to be seen. And we're like, and we're all in just like civvies like this. So I'm like, where is he? Where is he? He forgot. Is, is he in the toilet? So I looked at the director and went, is, is Barry in the toilet? He said, no, I don't know where he is. I said, no, all right. And then we got to his line and it was, so where is the saviour of London? And at that point, he comes through the audience and the sign is, hello, possum! So, and everyone goes, yeah. Well, as they, as, we, as they did the line, they went, so where's the saviour of London? And this door opened and he came out in full regalia, right? And he just went, hello, possum! My skin oh, went God. goose pimply, yeah, goose pimply, yeah. and I literally went like a little girl, 
<laughs> and I screamed, right? And I just stood there and I started crying because I realised that I am amongst a legend. Yeah. He's been doing this for 55, 60 years. I am amongst the legend. And do you know what? I had more photos with him than I've had with anyone else. He has signed, um, I've got four autobiographies, all personally signed, all, all four of his books. I have never had such an incredible experience with one person that was a stranger that ended up being one of my closest friends. Mm. I love him, I love him, I love him. Gosh, that's incredible. Her. Her, her. <laughs> <laughs> oh my word so how many years doing pantos then and well because because i mean you, there's a lot of this it's not just panto you've done you've done stacks of stuff but how many how many pantos have you been in would you I say i did um 10 years of musicals and 25 years 24 years of pantomimes wow no no apologies hold on 22 years of pantomimes but i've done 28 pantomimes because i'm I also fly to Australia every year. I do the pantomime in Australia. I also do pantomime. I've done a pantomime in America and in South Africa. And uh, no, 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 sorry, South Africa. I was going to do the pantomime, got cancelled, but I was the one that was booked to do it. So um, I ended up doing um, two pantomimes in the UK instead that year. So that's how it works. Sorry. So yeah, just all over the world. Amazing, absolutely Love amazing. It. Best feeling in the world. And where does the where does the Britain's Got Talent come into the the kind of the timeline of your career? Just so that okay. that because that was a pretty big deal as well, wasn't it? It was, yeah. So in two thousand and nine, I did the I did an a corporate version of Britain's Got Talent. So it's not televised, but it's a corporate version uh, called uh, the Next Big Thing, and that was based uh, in Birmingham. So all these talented artists get together, 11,000, I think it was at the time, if I'm not mistaken, 11,000 uh, performers. They all perform and they narrowed it, narrowed it, narrowed it, narrowed it down to 10 performers. Um, and I was in the top 10. And then I did the show and then I won the show. So I won the, the, the best act, um, got the awards, over the moon about it. And I got approached at that event by Britain's Got Talent. Right. So I didn't apply for them. They applied to me and they said... Kev, we loved what you did. Would you do Britain's Got Talent? I went, no, thanks. Uh, and they were quite keen. So they called me back about four weeks later. Seriously, it's going to be a great show for you. We'd love to have you on. No, thanks. Uh, so they attempted it three times. And on the fourth time, my agent said, do you know what, Kev? I think it might be a good idea. So I said, okay. So uh, there was a little bit of controversy because um, I went and actually went to the um, uh, uh, offices of um, Max Clifford. Uh, and, and Simon um, and I sat there and we had a bit of a conversation and there was this whole talk about the fact that there was going to be uh, a, a great way of me getting through to the finals um, so I said okay so I said I'd like to do that and they said well because you're a variety act you're different and we need different in our show because it's always been singers and dancers singers and dancers we need yeah. someone so I applied for the show um, and I flew all the way through to the semis, um, and it was great feeling. I mean, I did all the shows, but then when I got to the semifinals, um, I got contract. I, I got given another contract, and in that contract, it stipulated that whatever um, happens, if I get through to the finals, not if I win, but if I get through to the finals, I'd have to pay thirty three percent of everything I earn to the Simon Cowell Psycho Company for five years, with an additional one year added without my permission. So that was that. And then I said to my agent at the time, well, if I'm paying him 33%, I'm paying you 20. What else have I? He said, well, you're paying me 20. You're paying another 20 to their agent. And then you're paying 10 to the television company. So you literally walk away with, I think, about 10 or whatever, 20%, not yeah. even um, of what you're earning. And I thought, well, that doesn't make sense to me. And he said, yeah, but the worst bit about it, Kev, is everything you've got pre-planned in your diary for the next nine months is also theirs as well. So not just the not just the, the the work you did with them, anything else. So he almost like, like an exclusivity. But it was exclusivity. Yeah, yeah. And not only was it exclusivity, it meant that they would be in control of my act. So I couldn't actually physically go out and do a show for anyone else, right. without their permission. So I decided not to do it. I didn't. I didn't sign the contract, and because I didn't sign it, Simon Cal got very upset. And he turned around and said, well, he said, I think you're an idiot for not signing it. And I thought at that point, well, screw you. So I just turned, I said, stick it up your backside. And I walked away. I walked on stage for the semifinals. And before I even opened my mouth, he buzzed me. So he did that. And then, uh, who was it? Piers Morgan followed suit very, very quickly. Uh, and Amanda Holden kept me on. 
So Amanda Heldon kept me on. She said, um, I loved what you did for me. Thank you very much. So I said, and whatever. But I lost to a dog. So I did that. However, there was another part to this. Four months later, I found out that actually uh, I was the fastest. I'm I'm in the Guinness Book of Records for it as well, which I didn't even know for that year. uh, 2010. I was the fastest reality contestant to go from 113 to 1 to 3 to 1 in a matter of hours because someone had put seven figures for me to win the show. I don't know who that was. It's never been revealed. Um, And according to Coral, the betting company, if I had won the show, they would have gone bankrupt. Wow. That's That's what the thing was. And I believe Simon Cowell knew that. Wow. That's what the contract probably stipulated. Gosh. Yeah. So basically I moved away from the show and I won't name names, but there's probably about uh, eight or nine British, uh, British, sorry, uh, Britain's Got Talent um, stars who were on the show from 2010 who have all been made bankrupt by, by the contract. Um, and so much so that one of them has had to leave this country and live somewhere else. to be able to survive so it's a harsh contract but it's not a secret everyone knows the contracts are really because everyone gets them Mm. so they're very very they're very strategic with what they do was it a tough decision or did you know straight away actually no this is nonsense i'm just not no it's nonsense immediately because i own my career no one owns me no one owns me my talent belongs to me it doesn't belong to anyone else Mm. you can shoot me you can stab me you can kick me in you can take away my home my business you can take away everything you can take my eyesight away but the fact remains you'll never take my talent away yeah that's that's incredible absolutely incredible and bloody good for you yeah absolutely and look and look how how your career has developed since you know 11 years on yeah totally and you know you've done so many incredible things and like you say you know you you are authentically you you're in control of your own life your destiny all your choices yeah absolutely and that's the way it should be and that you should always be in control of your own life your own destiny is not made up by other people's um uh, desires and fears it's made up by yours yeah so never ever Never, ever judge yourself on someone else's um, fears. Certainly never, ever judge yourself on other people's positivity either. Take it, run with that positivity, but make it your own. Always make it your own. And that's why you need to hold yourself accountable every single morning. That's why I do those videos every morning, because I want I want to instigate positivity into everyone. Because ultimately, everyone wakes up at some point in their life. Everyone. And I woke up when I was 31. And when I woke up, I was single. I was paying through the nose over 120 grand's worth of bad debt that I had accumulated. That was a 45 grand loan and six or seven maxed out business cards plus five cars outside my drive. Five, not one. I'm on my own. Five. And I'm looking going, what am I doing? And at the time, and I talk about this, My sexual energy was also a big, big, big flaw for me because I was constantly looking for the next date, the next girlfriend, the next um, relationship because I thought I needed it. So every time I got into a relationship, I threw money at it. I threw money at it. Oh, I'll take you out for dinners all the time. I'll do this. I'll do that. Money I don't have. Money I don't have. And then end of the month, I sit back and go, I've just given away another six and a half grand in. uh, No, well, not even that. I mean. To be honest with you, none of none of it was my money. It was like the money was coming in from a uh, from a job and going back out immediately, and it was going to interest rate, interest rate, interest rate, interest rate loan, interest rate, interest rate, interest rate, date, dates, 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 interest rate, car. I'm not saving any money. I'm not doing anything. I was like, what am I doing? And when I got to 31, one day my mate went to me. You read the book Rich Dad Poor Dad, and I went, No. He said, Read it and then talk to me. I read it cover to cover within a couple of days. And I called him up and I went, oh, my God. And he went, well, here's another book, Think and Grow Rich. Read that as well before you before you talk to me. Yeah. So I read the book, Think and Grow Rich. I woke up. I woke up and I went, right. And within 17 months, I got rid of 120 grand debt by strategically using Martin Lewis's um, money-saving expert and other people like that. But I changed my life. I got rid of all my cars, got all my loans, this and that, whatever. I changed my life 
I became debt free and then I started saving money. And I'll tell you what, you save money very quickly when you don't, when money doesn't go out and the rest is history. And that's how I changed my life from the age of 31 uh, to now. And, um, and the way I save now, the way I do everything I do in my career, in my life, it's all done through a couple of friends that um, held my hand and went, and one of them was Paul Daniels. You know the magician? Yeah. Paul Daniels. He said to me, always have an FU account. And I went, what do you mean FU account? He said, very simple. He said, can you live, he said, on 90% of your wages and put away 10%? I said, yes. Can you do it with 80%? I said, yeah, I can. What about 70? He said, how much can you survive on every £100 that you, that you earn? I said, well, look. I said, I'll be honest with you, I could probably put away 30% every month. Put it away, he said. I said, wait, it's an FU account. I said, I don't get what this FU account is. He said, trust me. It's a account. And I went, right. What's that mean then? He said, simple. Keep putting in there 30% every month or more if you can afford it, right? You put in, you put in every month, every week, month, whatever. Then he said, look back on it in two or three years time. He said, I can guarantee you there'll be more money in there that you would never have believed you've got. Now, when your agent turns around and says to you, I'd like you to go and do a cruise, and you think, oh, I don't really want to go. You look in your FU account and you turn around to your manager and you go, no thanks, FU. <laughs> yeah. And Great that advice. is exactly what it is. And do you know what? His advice saved me through the pandemic. Yeah, because you you had a bank of resources and cash that yeah. you, meant you could survive. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, because it has been incredibly tough. I mean, for, you know, entertainment, business, hospitality, Dead. travel travel industry, which I spent a lot of my career in as well. I mean, it's it's heartbreaking. Some people are really, Dead. you know. Dead. A lot of people have given up the industry as well. Yeah. So we've got a lot of great, talented people that have gone off. And now they're paramedics, they're cleaners, they're office workers, they're bankers. They've gone. They're finished. These are great, talented people that could, you know, juggle 10, 10 balls and, and, and fiery at the same time. They're gone. Finished. Such a shame. It is a shame. Such a shame. So let's talk about the business then, because yeah. I think great advice there from Paul Daniels. I mean, amazing, right? And and your friends as well that, that kind of said, hang on a minute, you need to read Yeah, this. I'm actually seeing him tomorrow night. He oh. come, he's coming to my house. Wonderful guy. But he just mentioned the book. And that's where it came from, hun. He mentioned the yeah. book. And that's why I read a lot of books. And I and I recommend other people to do as well. Yeah, yeah. But sometimes there are just pivotal moments in your life, aren't you? Or people just come into your life at a certain point when you, you just, you're there, you're ready to receive it, you know. Totally. But you have to be open to receiving it as you well. You have to, yeah. Yeah. So I wasn't because I was, I had a lack of education, mm. understanding what money was, which we're never, ever taught, are we, in Not school? Not at all. Never. No. So lack of education with money. Lack of education with belief, lack of education with positivity. Even though I was positive, mm. I wasn't practicing it. I was just a positive person. Whereas if you practice it, you realize that actually manifesting positivity is an incredible resource for you. So I was like, wow, wow, wow. So when I started learning all this stuff, it changed my life around. It truly did. And I ended up finding the woman of my dreams. I ended up having twin boys. I ended up buying my properties and having a property portfolio, a business portfolio, and then ultimately ending up buying the biggest comedy brand in the UK. I did it not because I'm one of these guys that goes, yeah, I can do it. I did it because I believed that there was a lot of things coming to me and I just opened myself up and said, I'm ready to receive. Mm. So that's how I did it. Because if you say it's coming, it never will. No, no. Okay, it's coming. Well, when? You haven't put a time span on it. It's coming. No, man. It's here. I'm ready to receive. Yeah. It's here. So if, say, for example, you want a Bentley. Yeah. It's here. If, if that's in your head, it's here. You just have to go, I'm ready to receive it now. Mm. But we never say that. Because a lot of people forget the gratitude. So, say for example, you suddenly get an incredible opportunity, a contract to do something. You get the contract, go woo, celebrate, 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 celebrate. Yeah, great, great. We got the contract. When did you actually thank the ether for the fact that you got the uh, the uh, contract? When did you thank? When did you, when were you when were you when did you give that gratitude? Yeah. A lot of people forget it. And what happens is when you forget it and you don't feed the infinite intelligence which is what I call it, the infinite intelligence, think grow, think and grow rich, infinite intelligence. If you don't feed it by saying, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, that I've got this job, I'm ready for more. Yeah, I'm ready for more. Mm. Keep opening me up. It's going to be wonderful. But if you don't, if you're not, if you don't, if you don't thank it, 
it's very difficult to keep going. Strong. Yeah, and it is a simple thing, isn't it? I mean, I, I do it every morning when I do my, morn, my miracle morning, my version of my miracle morning. I will spend time in silence yep. and I'll do my breathing and I will just think, what are the three things I'm really grateful for today? Yeah. And it, it can be something really simple. Really, so it doesn't have to be massive things. It can be small things. That's lovely. But every day. Without fail, I always think, what am I? And it's very hard to be pissed off and grateful at the same time. Oh, yeah, totally. It's, it's impossible. Um, yeah, totally. And a lot of people actually wake up. A lot of people wake up with stress. Yeah. Okay. Bills. Oh, my God. Bills. Tax. Oh, I haven't paid that. Oh, my God. I haven't done that. Oh, my God. I've got to go out today. Oh, there's going to be traffic. I know there's going to be traffic. I'm never going to get that parking spot. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh my. And then what your brain does goes, yay, I'm winning. I've got that negative attitude. Here we go. We're winning. We're winning. Send them all. Send them all. Send them all. Send them all. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I didn't clean the oven today. And I left that. Oh, my God. I did this. And suddenly your brain, the voice in your brain mm. turns around and goes, yeah. You can't do it because you're stupid. And this is happening, that's happening. You've never been able to do it. Every time you say you're going to do it, just say it because it's never going to happen because I'm not going to let it happen. And that voice in my head happened to me for many, many years, many, many years. And one day I just went, and this is my analogy, by the way, but I turned around and went, enough. And I turned around to the voice in my head and I went, I want to be positive. So every time my brain went, yeah, whatever. And this is my voice talking, by the way. Mm. Yeah, whatever. I'd be like, no, whatever. Listen, leave me alone, right? So I'd do something positive. I'd smile. I'd walk down the street and I'd smile to someone. Good morning. And they'd be like, good morning. And I'd be like, I've just done, I've just won. Negative voice, go away. Yeah, yeah, but that's just one person, isn't it? Good morning again to another person. <sighs> this is what the voice says to me. And you practice and you practice and you practice. And after 28 days, 30 days of doing it every single day, it becomes a habit. Now your voice, the negative voice, comes back and goes, I'm still here, by the way, just to give it a heads up. Today's going to be really, really bad. It's going to be really bad. No, it ain't, mate. You're not, you're not winning. And occasionally it comes in and it can overpower me, right? Mm. It can. So do you know what I do? This is my terminology, my analogy. I've got a, an invisible machine gun. I pick it up and I shoot it into pieces and it explodes in front of me. The negative uh, voice explodes in front of me and I, and I watch it walking away going, all right, whatever then, right? And I watch it walking away and the positive goes, well done. Well done. Yeah. And that's how I work. And that's how the positivity in me constantly, constantly comes in. And I thank it for being there. And yeah. if you don't thank it, Jeanette, you're, you're done. You're yeah. done. You've got to thank it. Yeah, no, that's brilliant words of wisdom. Absolutely. And it, and it's something that some people go, oh, it's all a bit woo-woo. But you know what? Give it a bloody go. Because <laughs> this stuff is so incredible. Yeah. It is so incredible. But you, you, you say you just have to open your mind. Open your mind, open your heart, you know, lead with lead with kindness and, and great totally. things come. Great totally, things totally. Come. Listen, have you ever walked into a diamond shop, right, for a, a diamond wedding ring and gone, oh, I want to be here today yeah I'll, I'll take that one yeah that'll do how much all right then have you ever done it like that no, no. you go i love that one it's bling yeah if i walk into a into a car showroom and see a bentley continental gt i don't go up to it in a negative attitude and go yeah but look at the wheels i don't want to buy this one you don't walk in like that you don't do negativity because then you don't buy it yeah you look at it and go well the wheels are crap now forget i'm and you walk out no you walk in with positivity and you go that's the car I want. However, can I get even bigger wheels now, please? <laughs> that's what you say. Yeah. That's how you do it. That's how you do your life. And that's what I believe is very important when it comes to you progressing in your future. I'm Kev Orkin. I'm, I'm, I was brought up from a poor family. I, everything I've done in my life, I've achieved myself. Who am I? People say to me, who are you to buy jonglers? I'll tell you who I am. Someone who thought he could. And I didn't judge myself saying that I couldn't. No. That's who I am. So if I can do it, bloody well, you can do it. Yeah. That's what it comes down to. Incredible. Incredible. And talk about jonglers because this is this is a major, major thing you've achieved here. It's wonderful to have that to have that iconic brand and now it's part of your empire, if you like, of businesses that you've got. Honestly, things happen to me a lot of the time to me without me doing much to it. Attract it to yourself. To yes, you. yeah. I attract it. Now, what I mean by that is this, and this is really complex. So I'll I'll do it the the the, the best way possible for the listeners uh, mm. to to understand. I had a guy working for me here, 
I won't name names, but I had a guy working for me here and he worked for me for three and a half, four years. And I paid him every month a small um, kind of uh, income, shall we say, uh, kind of a retainer is the word I was looking for, yeah. a retainer, to work with him on getting him work, right? And three and a half, four years later, I sat back and did all the accounts and I saw that I had paid this man in the region of something like uh, 16 or 12, I think it was 12 actually, 12 grand in work, right? And I hadn't earned a penny from him. He'd never brought anything to the table, ever. So I said, you know, what are we going to do in this now, whatever? I said, maybe we'll look at maybe putting you on a, a freelance way. When you get the work in, then we commission it and whatever. But I'd wasted a lot of money on him. Mm. He then came to me and went, I know that the Jonglers brand is up for sale. Would you like to come in and buy it with me? I said, <coughs> excuse me. I said, yes. So we got together. We put the agreement together. We put the proposal and we went out and, um, and we put in a bid. And we got right through to the day we were going to sign the contracts to say we were going to buy it. And I spoke to him on the phone. I said, how are you doing? Blah, blah, blah. This and that. Like, yeah, yeah, all good. And I said, ready for tomorrow? Yeah, really excited. I said, well, look, I've, I said, I've got my half of the money all ready to go. I said, if you put your half of the money as well, we're laughing. What do you mean, my half of the money? I said, well, I, we're, we're splitting the business 50-50, right? And he went, yeah. Oh, okay. So your half's... And he went, oh, no, no, no. You put all the money up. He said, because I'm in the industry of the comedy and I know what I'm doing... I can give you my input through my expertise and we can open up comedy clubs and whatever. And I went, right, I'm going to walk away. I said, that's absolutely fine. You can do what you like and blah, blah, blah. So I walked away. He then spent the next five weeks trying to find someone else. Uh, a, let, let's call it a dumb schmuck to try and do the same thing, right? Yep. Didn't work. Five weeks into it, I'm sitting on my desk, uh, at my desk, sorry, sitting on my desk and I just go through all my paperwork and I found the contract and I thought, I wonder if it's still for sale. So I called the guy up and I went, Hi, I said, uh, how are you? And blah, blah. He said, I'm good, how are you? He said, weren't you going to buy this brand? I said, yeah. I said, have you not sold it yet? He said, no. I said, well, this is what happened. And I just told him what I, I told you. And he went, oh. I said, can I come and see you? He said, yeah. I said, all right. So I drove to his palace. Uh, and it was literally the size of a palace. And he sat on, and obviously with social distancing, it was during the pandemic. Yeah. He sat on his Bentley. I sat on my Kia. And... <laughs> And he said to me, tell me what your thoughts are. And I said, I want to bring hope back to all comedians. There are a few people, I said, comedians that have lost their faith in this industry. Some have run away from home. Some can't even face um, seeing their families because of the shame of not earning any money. I said, so I want to bring hope back to all the comedians by buying the brand, opening up comedy clubs and making a difference to this, um, um, you know, this, this country, mm. but ultimately the world at some point. And, and I want to bring laughter back to everyone because I said we've had nearly 12 months or whatever it is of pure, you know. So he went, okay. I said, but I'll tell you what I'm not going to do. He said, go on. I'm not going to offer you what the other companies have offered you. I said, because I know two, I think, or three companies at the time, what they had offered. And it was quite a lot of money, quite a lot. He said, so what are you going to offer me then? I said, I'm going to offer you the hope and I'm going to give you a very small amount of money and I'm going to walk away here with that brand because you're going to, uh, because you don't need it. You've got billions in your bank account and you're going to die a billionaire. Really? Why don't you die someone who's been respected for giving it to someone like me and then ending up actually going, look at that, the comedy brand's bringing laughter to everyone and I was part of making that happen. And he went, you cheeky bastard. And he shook my hand. <laughs> he went like, yes! <laughs> yeah, cheeky bastard. Shook Brilliant. my hand and I drove off, smiling all the way home, came home when I told my wife, she literally fainted and I bought the brand. I kept it a secret for five months. And then we launched it in 2021. Um, and I've now opened up, I think, about 10 or 12 venues. Um, and the idea is by um, 2022, we're hoping to have about 100 venues plus. Incredible. Oh, massively well done. I mean, that's And all the comedians fabulous. are back in work. And there were comedians that hadn't been paid. They're not here for me, by the way. Um, <laughs> And there was um, a number of comedians that hadn't been paid by Jonglers when um, it went into administration in mm. 2017. Mm. And the first thing I did was as soon as I opened the doors, I said, those people that weren't paid, I said, they're going to get offered jobs first. 
Yeah. And um, six out of the quite a few have come back and they've started earning money from it and they've started getting their money back. Oh, wonderful. So wonderful. I'm really pleased. Yeah. That's that's my aim. That's my aim. To be um, transparent, but also to be um, loyal to my brothers and sisters in the comedy world. Yeah. And, you know, as you were talking, having such a strong purpose and such a compelling purpose and reason why, one, it got you the deal because you were just speaking with from your heart and for the, the gentleman that was selling it, um, for him to be able to give back and do something good in the world... Um, what an amazing, yeah. amazing thing to have created. So, well, we're, we're, we're still creating. Yeah. Uh, well. But we've also now opened it up. There's something that Jonglers had never done, but we've opened it up to uh, Jonglers Kids as well. So we're now nurturing the talent of the future by opening up uh, the Jonglers Kids Comedy Camp, which I think you were part of on the Winners Club when um, we raised, uh, well, I'd, I'd put a crowdfunder in and we'd only raised £1,200. And I was like, oh, I need two and a half grand, otherwise I can't make this work. And I went on the Winners Club. We announced it and we made £2,700 that day, that morning. Everyone donated and donated and donated. Lo and behold, the council just come in and they've just donated me another two and a half grand. So I've now got five grand to put on two different projects to teach 30 kids, underprivileged kids, for free. And we feed them as well how to do stand-up comedy. And then that's the future that will then, when they grow up to be 18, will come in through Jonglers and we'll go, we taught you, come on, get into the... Brilliant. So it's, a, it's an ongoing circle and that's why... For me, Jonglers is not a business that I'm going to scale up to a big, 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 big business and then sell it and make my millions and walk away. No way. For me, it's a lot deeper than that. I'll make my millions from that. I'm, I don't even have a doubt of it. The money is not the big aspect for me. The, 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 the big aspect for me is to nurture uh, the well-being of young talent, to nurture the comedians that are working already and to feed their families and to ultimately bring the Jonglers family brand together so that you know when you go to a Jonglers comedy club, you're going to laugh. I know when you go to a Jonglers comedy club, you're going to be a loyal customer and I know the comedians are going to be paid and they're going to be looking after each other forever and ever and ever so that Jonglers becomes the biggest comedy brand ever. That's what I'm looking at doing. Well, I have no doubt at all. It's got, it's happened already in my mind. It's there. <laughs> it's all Bless good. You. So, um, no, it's incredible. I love it. I absolutely love it. And and you know what? The, the giving back and bringing the kids on just so much because whether they those kids end up coming through the door of Jonglers and being stand-up comedians or not, the skills that you are going to give those totally. kids in terms of confidence, public speaking, public speaking, confidence, all everything. Of that, and actually mental phenomenal. well-being. Yes. Yeah. Which is the key, by the way, the key because a lot of children children haven't been um thought about during the pandemic mm. they haven't been um and a lot of them have really struggled my my twins included and that's how it was born anyway the actual project was born through my kids so to give back to children and say so what have you been doing in the pandemic right well uh, and then they walk on stage and they go good evening everyone my name's josh i'm seven years old or eight years old because it's eight to 15 years i'm eight years old and do you know what homeschooling <sighs> I mean, imagine a child just saying that. Yeah. You're going to have a laugh and laugh. That's what we're trying to aim to do for children, to say, talk about your problems, talk about your issues, but let's make it funny. Oh, fantastic. Well, you have had an incredible career. It's so inspiring. It's such an honour, honestly, to sit oh, here. Oh, be quiet, woman. Oh, it really You're is, You're an amazing honestly. human being yourself. What yeah. you're talking about? You've got this great podcast. You've got this <laughs> incredible following. You've got some incredible people that you've interviewed yourself, and you are... Every morning I go into Clubhouse, there's you are. Another bit of advice that I go, right, that's another gold nugget. I've got to put that down. You're awesome. You're oh. awesome. Oh, bless you. You are. You, oh, you're making are. me blush. I feel quite tearful now. <laughs> but uh, no, honestly, it's, it is such a such a pleasure to interview because one, you've had a fabulous career, but you've also, you know, you've had your challenges and how you've totally. actually overcome all of those and to be the man you are today and yeah. the legacy that you're creating in the world is, is truly inspiring. So for people listening, I think it just gives hope um, and and it really does allow people to de deeply think about they can achieve anything as long as you open your mind, you open your heart, you yeah. lead with kindness and you do the work, you, you do the actions, you take the, put the effort totally, in. Totally, but, you know? but I'm no different to you. No. You're no. no different to the next person. We're all human beings, we're all the same. The difference in all of us is our drive, mm. is our risk, is our positive thinking is the way we think about what we can and can't do and the moment you think you can then you're right but the moment you think you can't you're also right Absolutely. so if we can think we can we can we can we can we can then if it fails well done for finding a way not to do it let's do it again now mm. and that's how it works i've 
I, I can't say I'm a successful businessman at all. I can say to you that I work every day and I have good days and I have bad days. I'm not one of these guys that can sit back and go, oh, I don't need to work anymore. I'll retire. Good God, no. I want to die working on stage. I want to die watching someone performing and going, that's the person I've nurtured in my career. I want to die doing that. I don't want to die sitting down going, oh, and I, I just want to sit down with a nice cigar. And, well, actually, I do want to do that as well, to be fair. Um, nice cigar overlooking a beautiful sea and whatever and thinking, yes, this is a life. I don't need to do anything anymore because that's not how I live. I live wanting to make a difference on this planet. And, I, I, and I'm telling you now, Jeanette, and mark my words, I am going to leave this planet one day, many, many, many years from now, having changed the entire entertainment industry. That's how it's going to happen for me. Yeah, I have absolutely no doubt at all. No doubts at all. So I'm going to finish with a couple of questions. Go for if it. I may. Can you think of the best piece of advice you've ever been given? Yeah, there's oh, there's so many. Um, I've, I've been given so many from random strangers as well. Um, and each one was incredible. But the one I'm going to quote again, and I'm going to quote it because for me, I think he deserves a second mention is Paul Daniels. Mm. And one, obviously, I told you about the FU account, but this was the other one that he told me and it stuck with me forever. And do you know what? Before I tell you this, I know people that fail in this career, fail in entertainment because they don't do what that wonderful human being did uh, said to me. And that is, if someone offers you £20, £200, £2,000 or £20,000, always say yes and go and do the job because you never know who's watching. And that is something that I've lived by. I turn up, I sometimes turn up to charities where I refuse to take the money. Other times I take the money because they say, look, we've got your petrol expenses, this and that, whatever. But I'll never forget his advice, four, three, four months later, something like that. His advice was never ever turn it down. A charity called me and they said, we've got no money. But um, if you would come and do a, a gig for us, we would really appreciate your time. And I said, absolutely. And that was because he had told me not to. Uh, and I'm pointing there because there's a poster of Paul Daniels. <laughs> so um, a show I produce uh, called The Audience With. And I turned around and said, yeah, I'll come and do it. We've got no money, but we can give you some petrol money. I said, I don't want any petrol money. You sure? No, I don't want it. Okay. I turned up and there was, and I'm not going to name who the celebrities were. There was two celebrities that walked on stage before me. And they both died a horrible death from the audience. No one laughed. And mm. I was like, oh, my God. Yeah. And when they walked off, one of them, a very famous impressionist, actually, turned around, looked at me and went, good luck. And I remember thinking, oh, God, and I'm, and I'm doing this for free. Yeah. This is even worse. Yeah. And lo and behold, I walked on stage, walked on stage. And I started my act as a foreigner, you know, going, hello, thank you. How are you? It's so nice to be here. And I started my act. I did 20 minutes to a standing ovation. I gave out 28 business cards that day and I made six figures in my bank account uh, in those 12 months. That was his advice. Yeah. So never, ever doubt it. Always go and do it because ultimately you never know who's watching. Yeah, absolutely. Brilliant advice. Yeah, fantastic. And just my final question. Well, actually, no, penultimate question. Go on, where, go. where can people find you? Because I think it's important that where they can know where to check you out because obviously Jongler's website, but sure. you know, where, where else can they find you, Kev? So my website's called kevlive.com. And the reason I've called it Kev Live is because there's so many sections of my live work that I do. Calling it Kevorkian would have been wrong because there's a doctor called Dr. Kevorkian and he was um, the man who created euthanasia. Um, so imagine trying to link that with me. Do you know what I mean? Hello, <laughs> hello, right? So kevlive.com and you go on there and everything I do from keynote speaking to acting to performing to musicals, everything's on there so you can get me on there and on instagram it's just kev orkian o-r-k-i-a-n and i can absolutely vouch that he does answer his messages every on single one <laughs> and every single like if everyone i always thank thank you thank you thank you i go through the whole lot because i don't want anyone to feel like i'm not um giving them attention yeah no it's, it's a great quality you have so my final question this podcast is called brave bold brilliant right of course as you, as you very rightly are brave bold and brilliant but what does that mean to you if someone say if i said That's to you what does question. brave bold brilliant mean brave to me means getting up every morning and looking at the day as a new challenge and seeing the day as a positive challenge and accepting the fact that it might not always be that way. That's brave. Bold is to be accountable to yourself and to realise that whatever you do in your life and however you make it uh, in your life, whatever 
whatever career you choose, whatever career path you choose, uh, is to always accept that you are the sole reason you are where you are today. Yeah, that's what boldness means to me. You are the sole reason. Look, look around you right now. I'm looking around me now. Everything here that I see around me, all the posters, everything I see is because I've made that difference. Not because someone else has done it and I'm living their dream. I'm living mine. And brilliant. I don't think we ever get to that stage in our lives. I think everyone strives to be brilliant, strives to be great. But brilliance for me, for me, is to see other people's faces and to see them smiling and laughing. Then I know that what's, this, what's ever happened, the situation that's happened, the project, the atmosphere, that's what the brilliance is for that moment. But that brilliance disappears after a while. So you have to keep injecting more brilliance. So if what I say is create opportunities for brilliance, but never be happy with being brilliant because ultimately the moment you are is the moment you stop. Wow, what a fabulous answer. Is that right? Amazing, amazing. <coughs> so thank you so much, Kev. Honestly, I really appreciate the time. I love it. I love fabulous. you. I love I love everything you stand for. It's absolutely brilliant. And the fact that you've come in and done this today is just amazing. And now you've got a trip up, haven't you? About four and a half hours. Whatever. Yeah, hey, listen, you're worth it. You're worth every there you minute. Go. <laughs> His head's getting really big now. <laughs> no, it's not. Trust me, it's not. It's not. <laughs> no, no, you're the most humble man I've met, I think, for considering your success. Oh, Bless you, darling. Thank you so much. Thank you. I really hope you've enjoyed Brave, Bold, Brilliant. Don't forget to subscribe and share with all your friends. And if you've enjoyed listening, I'd love it if you'd leave me a five-star review. 